This is why your joint is called Stuck with Damon Young. You're in your head. You are literally stuck on some shit nobody else cares about. And it is giving you fits. Welcome back to Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we just don't take pictures with celebrities because, well, we don't actually have any good reasons why. Just bad reasons. But still, no pictures. So, the recent death of Harry Belafonte and the reactions to it has reminded me of some of my deep and dark cynicisms and doubts about the way we engage with our social media platforms. Particularly that blurry line of intent, where I wonder if we share pictures of recently deceased celebrities for reverence or just for engagement. To help unpack some of these cynicisms, I'm joined by Panama Jackson, Colin Masetta Grio, and my brother from another mother. And then, for Dear Damon, I'm joined by Simone Polanin, host of the Spotify original podcast, Not Past It. And she helps me answer a question from a parent who's unsure about whether to allow her baby boy to grow his hair long. All right, y'all. Let's get it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Joining us this week is Panama Jackson, columnist at DeGrio, co-founder of Very Smart Brothers, one of my best friends. Panama Jackson, what's good, man? Ain't much, man. What's going on with you, brother? You know, same old, I need you to help me with something. Okay. With a thing that I'm struggling with. Okay. So, Harry Belafonte, actor, philanthropist, activist, died recently. Right. Singer. Singer. Multi-hyphenate. Absolutely. And you're on social media just like I am. And you saw that many people had either images of Harry Belafonte on their profiles or pictures they have taken with him. And they posted them with some words and a remembrance, how much he meant to them, et cetera, et cetera. And that happens whenever a beloved person passes away. So where I need your help. I look at that before I even get in. I know this is my own cynicism, my own my own dark heart. Okay. Right. This is the fault of my dark heart. Okay. But I look at that stuff and I'm just thinking these niggas is just doing this for engagement. That it has nothing to do with like a remembrance or a memorial or a eulogy. This is just straight, you know what? Everyone is posting. Everyone is getting their hairy retweets, their hairy likes. 
you know, their hairy shares on. So I'm going to get into this pool and get my easy retweets, get my easy likes, get my easy comments too. Again, I know again <laughs> that I, <laughs> that I have a dark cynical heart, but whenever I see that happen, that is my first reaction. My primal reaction to this is y'all niggas is bullshitting. And so can you help me with this, Panama? Can you help me get past, or do I not need to get past this? Is there some truth to this deep, dark belief? Well, I think all things can be true at the same time. I'm surprised your first thought is that they're just doing this for the quick likes. When my first thought is how in the hell do so many people have pictures with everybody who dies? Like, how did the hell did everybody have a picture with Harry Belafonte? Like, I started looking through my phone. I'm like, where's my picture? Like, what? where was I the day when Harry Belafonte was like, <laughs> everybody gets a picture? This was my concern. Like, how did I miss that? And again, that's part of my cynicism. That's part of my dark heart where I'm thinking, you know what? These people, you know what? I got this photo op with Harry Belafonte and I'm just going to keep it. <laughs> I'm just going to table it until he dies. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they, so they get the pictures, not necessarily so they could have the picture, but they get the picture so that they could use it whenever they want to use it to get more engagement on their social media platform. I'm going to push back a little bit on that. Please do. So let's say you're out and you see Harry Belafonte and you recognize him and you know who that is. And this is a big deal. You take that picture. But let's say it's not a great picture. So you don't immediately think to post it because he's looking the other way and you're looking the other way. So it's just in your phone because it's a picture with that person, but it's not a great picture. So you just kind of you keep it in the stash. Right. It's a, I have like 40,000 pictures in my phone. Harry Belafonte passes away. And you remember that you did take a picture with Harry Belafonte. And you're like, damn, when did I take that picture? That was in 2008. Let me go find the picture. There is no better time to post that picture in remembrance than when he has passed away. This picture you probably never used or had a reason to. So I can understand that. Yes, most people want to be a part of the conversation, but there's actually nothing wrong with that, right? Like, this is somebody we should be celebrating. Harry Belafonte lived a full life. He literally did everything you could possibly do with that life. If you got a picture of somebody like this, there's never going to be a better time to post it than now anyway. So your cynicism is understandable, but it's also just kind of part of the course for... This is what happens when a famous person passes away and you just so happen to have a picture. You should share that picture. Listen, I love you, bro. When you pass away, it's going to be a flood, dog. Like, I don't care if we're 90. It's a wrap. Well, thank you for that morbid turn. Please live a long time. I appreciate that. But okay, so we have a relationship. Fair. And also, too, we have this sort of interactions with each other where we take organic pictures. It's not like, oh, I saw Damon Young at this thing. So I'm going to take a picture of him. And then when he dies, <laughs> I'm going to post that motherfucker. But there are a lot of those pictures that exist. I have been with you. You and I have been a party to pictures with the most in the most random of circumstances with tons of people. So if something happens to either one of us, there are going to be pictures everywhere. And as there should be, it is a tribute in passing. It is the momentary thing that we do as a culture where even if we're not that connected to the person or not invested past the day that the news hits this, Jerry Springer passed away, right? If I had a picture with Jerry Springer, I might be inclined to post it. Now, Jerry Springer was the 4 p.m. slot of almost every day of my life, my freshman year of college, but it's a random picture, right? But if I had it, I would post it 
Because I want everybody to know that I was a Jerry Springer person. People need to know this. It's important. History. If you had a picture of Jerry Springer, you would post it following his passing. You would do that. I probably would because I don't know that I'd ever have an opportunity after that. Like, there's no good reason to just randomly post your picture with Jerry Springer. You know what I mean? Like, because there's no more opportunities for him to do something to be in the news. Is there any good reason to take a picture with Jerry Springer? If I saw Jerry Springer out... You would run up to him like, Jerry! Bro, wouldn't you? Dude, Jerry Springer was a part of the cultural zeitgeist for years. Like, this dude mattered. I don't deny that, but I think we're getting even deeper into, like, a fundamental flaw that I possess. And that I just... Okay. Like, that part of, you see Jerry Springer in the streets, you would take a picture of him. I would not. I would just be like, oh, that's Jerry Springer over there. Okay. The reason I would, though, is because, like I said, so freshman year of college, Jerry Springer show, 4 p.m., all the homies would gather in one of my boys' rooms. We would watch Jerry Springer. We love to see chairs fly across TV screens. We love to see baby... Cameron did the most amazing, like, rehashing of a sketch, right? Like, he became part of the thing. So I would take a picture with Jerry Springer just so I could send it to my friends, right? Like, yo, I just saw Jerry Springer. When Jerry Springer passes, I would then post that picture like, yo, R.I.P., to a real one, Jerry Springer. You might have the picture for personal reasons, but you just so happen to have the picture that you can share. Stevie Wonder came to the club. I took a picture with Stevie Wonder and sent it to my mom like, yo, Stevie, I met Stevie Wonder. Was that for your mom or was that for you? I would take the picture for my mother. Okay. But I would keep it. And something happens, though, when you realize you have these pictures, you utilize them in a social capacity for the sake of being a part of the convo. I don't know, man. It just seems kind of normal nowadays. I acknowledge that how I feel about this is probably abnormal, right? Or uncommon because it's just, again, I, I can't get it out of my head. Wait, so are you saying you wouldn't do this? You wouldn't post pictures with celebrities when they pass? Even as we're having this conversation, I have to admit that I am talking about engagement around this sort of thing. We had our blog, VSB. We've worked together at the root. When something terrible happens in the news, one of our jobs was to, okay, let's figure out a way, a unique way to write about this thing, right? Yeah. A thing that we might not have decided to write about if it wasn't for this terrible thing happening. Absolutely. We have to write about it in a unique and reverent or, you know, personal way or whatever to get that sort of attention. To get the likes. <laughs> yeah, to get the likes and you get the reading, to get the, the page views and whatever. And so I have done it, right? Yes. And again, I think that this feeling is a self-indicting feeling because even when I would do that, I did feel like, you know what, am I doing this just for the likes? Am I doing this just for the retweets? Is this a person dies, a black person's killed by the police, and I hurry up and I write a take about it? Yeah, maybe I'm articulating it in a way that other people, and maybe there are people who like, you know what, I wonder what Damon Young has to say about this. So I'm going to read what he has to say. Probably. But I always question, I guess, how genuine my intent was. Like, am I really this devastated? Am I really this hurt? Am I really this angry? Or am I performing devastation? Am I performing anger? Am I performing hurt? And I'm putting it in a very stylistically unique way in order for it to be palatable, in order for people to read it, retweet it, share it, et cetera, et cetera. That is a lot of thought about writing an article that you're going to write regardless, right? Like that's a lot of time spent 
on something that you're going to do anyway. It doesn't even matter why you did it. You're going to do it right now. If that has somehow stopped you from doing it in the social media sphere with pictures of celebrities. okay. but at the end of the day, nobody's going to like nobody who sees that you posted a picture with XYZ celebrity who was passed on is going to be like, man, I bet he only did that shit because that dude died. and He's just trying to get likes. I mean, most people, it's what people do. Like somebody passes, you just post it, right? And everybody moves on. People don't even post it permanently. It's in people's stories. 24 hours from now, nobody will even know you posted it. So it doesn't even matter. So it's a, you spend a lot of time. This is why your joint is called Stuck with Damon Young. You're in your head. You are literally stuck on some shit nobody else cares about. And it is giving you fits. It is giving you fits. Meanwhile, I couldn't care less. Like our job at VSB was to write those articles so people could come and say, I'm at VSB commenting on this thing and talking. That's where they wanted to have the conversation, right? So we created the space to have the convo there. And we were expected to do it. But the mental part of it never once crosses my mind as a hurdle of any sort. Because the truth is, that was our job. And two, that's what people do. Like, if you don't, nobody will notice. If you do, nobody will care in 24 hours anyway. I don't disagree with anything that you're saying right now, right? I don't know why people say I don't disagree when they could just say I agree. It's a way of like hedging your agreement. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. I do it all the time. We do that in text all the time. Like, I don't disagree with what you just said. Yes, <laughs> you so. just haven't figured yes. out <laughs> exactly <laughs> how you disagree yet. So you're just putting right. it out. It's a placeholder. Right. Right. I think what's at the bottom of this right now, what's at the center of this is just a general general cynicism more about how we engage on social media and what it means and and things we do that are only for engagement would we do it under the veneer of care or under the veneer of protection or under the veneer of like grief and you know this is changing the subject a bit but okay simone bowles world-class gymnast maybe the best gymnast of all time just got married yep congrats to her to her boyfriend i think her boyfriend is a Either was a college ball player. Yeah, he's an NFL player. Houston Texan. Okay. Yep. And beautiful wedding photos, you know, hit the internet. And like three people with like a thousand followers between them started talking shit about her hair. Saying that, you know, she was not beheaded and how come she didn't get lace front for her wedding and et cetera, et cetera. Okay, because niggas is going to hate. That's fine. Of course. Right? That's par for the Part of the package. But then... People with hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers found those tweets and then made it a thing. Like, how dare you talk about Simone Bowles? How dare you? She is just, she got married. You're going to go home to your broke ass house, (laughs) your broke ass (laughs) boyfriend, your broke ass life. She's a millionaire, et cetera, et cetera. She has her own Wikipedia page. You pay for Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> all that <laughs> right right elon didn't ante up for you and so this this sort of thing happens and again it's one of those things where it's done to quote unquote protect right the person who is under attack or being criticized but this shit has always made my teeth it's just like simone bowles was not going to even know that those three motherfuckers with five followers between them were talking shit about her here Unless she's the type that searches for her name right. in Twitter. She was not going to see that. But now, after people with these large accounts are retweeting it, are talking about it, are writing stories about it, now it's a thing. 
now is a thing that she may even have to respond to. And it's like, is it really protecting her if all you did was brought attention to a thing she would have never, ever, 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 ever known about or heard about? And so this protection ends up just being an excuse to increase engagement because you know that if you go at these people who are going at her, you're going to get a whole bunch of likes. You're going to get a whole bunch of retweets. You're going to get a whole bunch of shares and all of the social capital that comes with that. You know, and I think the greatest example of this and one of the most tragic examples of this is when um, Gabby Douglas was in the 2012 Olympics. Right. Right. And doing her thing, she what was her nickname, the Flying Squirrel. This was supposed to be her Olympics, where she was supposed to win everything, do everything, etc. And so she's on her way to doing her thing. And like three ignorant motherfuckers on the internet start talking shit about her hair. And then 300,000 of us came out to defend her against those three motherfuckers. And it got to a point where it became an actual story, a story that when they were interviewing her after one of her meets, they actually asked her about it. And if you would have saw the look on her face and she was just like, I'm just out here trying to compete, do my thing. And people were talking about my hair. And she was never the same after that. From that point on, she was never the same. That's right. Yeah. And again, we came at those people who were going at her because, you know, we got to circle the wagons, we got to protect her, et cetera, et cetera. But how much protection did that really do if all it ended up doing was creating this bigger story? You know what I mean? And again, this is something that she wouldn't have known about these three or four motherfuckers who were talking shit about her. But when 30,000 people are defending her against those three people who are talking shit, it becomes a thing. I mean, that's the dark side of the Internet, though, right? Because I think the Harry Belafonte thing, for instance, at least it's a tribute to a person who lived a life that added significant value to almost all of us. If you know who he is, he impacted your life positively, right? But the other side of this is, one, there's a ton of people on the Internet with nothing better to do all day. That I am dumbfounded by how many people clearly have nothing else to do with their days except spend all day on social media and amplify and reamplify and retweet all these things that nobody would be thinking about if it wasn't for that, right? So, mm-hmm. but it comes with the territory. Now, are we protecting anybody? Yes, it's just that you can't, in its most sincere initial ideas, sure, but you also do not know what's going to happen once you decide to weigh in on something, right? Like once you weigh in on something on social media, it all takes a long, on a life of its own. Now, you're probably right in the sense that a lot of people do this because they're looking to get the likes and the retweets. Like you do, you're right. Like if I'm supporting her, everybody who sees this is going to share this because it's like, man, you're on the right side of history on this one. And sometimes that works out. Sometimes it has negative consequences. I mean, there's really no fix for it though, right? Like there's no way to tamp down on this. There's no way to make that better. I mean, even if you as a person of stature in this world decide you're just not going to engage in that, somebody else will. Like, you know, if you don't sell it, somebody else will. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, that part is the question about whether or not it's worth creating another echo chamber for something that nobody would care about. 
Like, I remember when the Gabby Douglas thing, I think you wrote an article about that, right? You wrote an article about nobody was talking about this until we all started talking about it. Something along those lines. I might be getting that a little bit off. I might have. But it was something along those lines. But it was on VSB. We did address that, right? It was addressed on VSB, Mm -hmm. which we like to think that we're doing that in the way that actually lends value. It's the same thing. But it's the same thing, right? At that time, it was the same thing. It was the article was going to be shared thousands of times or whatever and it you know because it's the thing that everybody's talking about we're talking about it in the right way and everybody's like yeah look at this they're saying the right thing but you're still putting that thing out there right so it's difficult I mean, your cynicism there i think is completely justified but also there's just nothing to be done about that which is sad i suppose but it's also just the nature of the beast right sometimes that can work positively right like it does have positive impacts on occasion It's just when it's negative, it just seems to have the worst possible outcome that you wish didn't happen. It's positive sometimes when someone does some fuck shit and when someone like in the world is captured doing some fuck shit or someone like Tucker Carlson, whatever, does whatever he's doing. But even then, even then, and, you know, you take all the pot shots and you do all the things that you do to dunk on them. It's like, isn't that engagement what they want ultimately? Like, I think about one prime example of Jason Whitlock, and it's a lot of fun to talk shit about him because there's a lot of spaces where he could be talked shit about. (laughs) Yeah. But again, he seems to be a person who is just shamelessly after engagement and is going to do anything possible to get people to click on his Twitter page, to click on his articles, et cetera, to click on his name, to get his name trending. Skip Bayless. Skip's another one. You're right. I don't know if there's a solution because the nature of the social media platforms that that we have, you know, it becomes like the symbiotic sort of, you know, relationship. Yeah, it eats itself, right? Like their engagement, their literal credibility depends on creating that spin of conversation, right? Like Skip hates LeBron James, right? And he can't stop himself from hopping in there and making terrible takes on any and everybody, right? It's annoying, but that's also his brand. Like if he stops doing that, you know, like what happens to his career? You know what I'm saying? So it's, there's no fix. Like that's the one thing. And I'm not even hundred percent sure that the world becomes a better place without all that stuff. Like I want to think it does, but I feel like there's some kind of unintended consequence, some kind of butterfly effect, kind of something, but you got to take the good with the bad. Cause I do think on occasion you get people out of there. I mean, Bill Cosby, right? That's Hannibal Burris making an offhand joke in a nightclub. It spins up into what ends up becoming the downfall of Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. right? So that was an instance where you get a positive outcome. I mean, unless you're part of the Cosby family. But, you know, <laughs> th- th- that's what I'm saying. Like, the good with the bad. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how to answer that one, man. That was, that was a struggle. Just, but if I had a picture of Harry Belafonte, I would have shared it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, hopefully Simone Biles just <laughs> takes a swim in her money. Whenever she sees another tweet that mentions <laughs> her hair or whatever, you know, hopefully the people who are the subject of that stuff, who are above the fray anyway, like you're giving space to people that nobody would ever remember yeah. if they disappeared tomorrow. Like, hopefully those people can move past that. But, you know, what are you going to do? I think this is just unresolved trauma from when I was like 12. And like this girl told me that this other girl said that I was ugly. And I was like, I didn't need that information. You could have kept that. I, I didn't, you didn't need to tell me. I, yeah, it definitely didn't help. She feels that way. That's fine, right? But you didn't need to 
share that information with me. I don't even know if she felt that way. And and I think that's still, <laughs> I think I need to go to therapy. <laughs> Can I tell you a real quick story? As a matter of fact, this is about me being coerced into somebody I could be accused of bullying had an opportunity to get back at me years later and fumbled it. And I felt so bad for her fumbling and I almost wanted to help her out. When I was in eighth grade, I got, I don't know how I got talked into telling this girl she had bad breath. It was a terrible thing to do. I'm the class president. I'm all this stuff. And somehow I got talked into doing this. Embarrassed this poor girl who had a crush on me too, from my understanding. I feel guilty about it even today. And this happened when I was like 12. Anyway, some years later, I'm in Huntsville, Alabama, and I walk into like the military base PX, like the little mall shop type thing. And she's literally there, the one checking IDs at the front. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, and she was so stunned when she saw me that like you could tell, like she was just like, and I, my sister was with me. I was like, yo, I got to go talk to her. I got to give her a chance to get, get me. Mm-hmm. I walk back. I linger a little bit longer than I should in front of her. And she takes the shot. I was like, how you been? Yeah, you know, I'm doing really good in life. You know, I got my degree in this. And I went to the University of Georgia Tech. And I was like, oh, that's not a place. <laughs> was it the University of Georgia or Georgia Tech? Like, and, like <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm just, so I tell my, I look at my mm. sister who looks at me like, wait, what? And I was like, and we walk away and I'm just like, yo, I feel like I got to go give her an opportunity to fix that sentence. So she can say when she tells this story that she accurately got a chance to get back. But I didn't. My sister convinced me that it wasn't worth it, that she's going to have to live with that for the rest of her life. Hopefully she's not listening. If she is, I'm sorry. Find me on social media. Feel free to correct that sentence. Um, This has nothing to do with what you just said, but it reminded me of somebody doing something they shouldn't have done and the opportunity to get that person back later. So, shout out. Panama Jackson, thank you for joining us today. (laughs) Appreciate it. People looking for you. Where can they find you? Where you be at? I mean, you can find me on social media without a picture of Harry Belafonte at Panama Jackson everywhere. And on my podcast, Dear Culture, which is available wherever podcasts are. And at The Griot, where I write insightful, funny things, mostly about parenting nowadays, as it turns out. Uh, But yeah, Panama Jackson everywhere. Dear Culture. All right, man. (laughs) Appreciate you. Up next for Dear Damon. We got Simone Polanin, host of Not Past It, which is a Spotify original podcast. But before that, Damon Hates. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Rockstar Energy Drink. Be honest. Are you procrastinating by listening to this podcast? It's okay. You just need Rockstar Focus. Choose from three delicious flavors, each crafted with ingredients for an ideal energy and mental boost, like lion's mane. 200 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar. Visit rockstarenergy.com to learn more. At least 75 milligrams of caffeine has been shown to help improve attention. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, this hate is very specific. I guess all my hates are very specific. I don't need to qualify them anymore. So I have interesting dimensions down low, and I know that sounds like euphemism for something else, but just stay with me. Where my pants size is 36, 32, but I also have pretty big thighs and a big butt or whatever. And so finding jeans that fit me the way I want them to fit has been a bit of a struggle. Also, I try to be mindful of fashion and what's in and the type of jean, the type of cut that is in. And when I was growing up, slim jeans were not in. And then within like the last 10 years, they became more popular. I mean, back then, the only people you saw with skinny jeans were Jamaicans, right? But now you see all types of people, like Jamaicans and like only black people, because you would see white punk sort of people with skinnier jeans too. But the only black people you saw, like you could spot a Jamaican from a mile away if you could see the veins in his thighs then you knew that that was a jamaican (laughs) right but anyway now skinnies are not really in but my closet is full of them and so we're at this space where i'm not sure what type of pants to buy because i don't want to be so hype beastie so fashion forward that i start just rocking the cargos that look like motherfucking garbage bags on your legs right now which is what i see the super uber fashionable people doing right now because I don't know if those things are still going to be in next season but I know that slim jeans are not in anymore so I don't know what to do I think I just need to hire somebody maybe like a personal shopper maybe a stylist maybe something maybe I just need to talk to my nephews I have two 20 something nephews who could help me out with this and give me tips or whatever and maybe I just need to accept the fact that at 44 I'm not supposed to know any of this shit Right. Maybe I just need to retire into my motherfucking chinos and khakis and the fucking Under Armour sweatsuit and the Bluetooth that, you know, niggas over 42, I guess, comes in the package. Right before you get the AARP card, they give you the Bluetooth. They give you the white linen suit that you're supposed to wear on cruises and when you go to cabarets. And then they give you the sweatpants and the sweatsuit. So maybe I just need to accept that and stop trying to be hip and move forward. I don't know. Up next, for Dear David, I'm joined by Simone Polanyi, host of the Spotify original podcast, Not Past It. Morgan Producer, what we got going this week? Dear Damon, I decided before my one-year-old son was born that I was not going to cut his hair until he asked me to. I had no idea how much blowback that would cause. Initially, my reasoning was because I don't want to impose gender norms on a prepubescent child. When he got a little bit older and his curls started to grow, people continued to ask me about cutting his hair. 
I still felt strongly about not cutting it, but I rationalized it as being based on our black hair journey. He's biracial, I'm the black parent, and I feel strongly that the black hair journey should be up to the person whose head on which the black hair rests. I, like many children of the 80s and 90s, suffered many a nights with my head over the kitchen sink until the burning on my scalp became so intense, I knew I had gotten as close as possible to white beauty standards. But my son's hair clearly has that smooth, curly texture, and I don't think he's gonna have that black hair journey. It may likely even be white passing. The fact is, I can't quite put my finger on why cutting off his beautiful curly locks before he even wants me to just feels wrong, even like a violation. It also seems so absurd for me as a mom to do something that feels wrong for no other reason than people are saying to. It's not as if I think one-year-olds should make their own choices, obviously. He takes baths against his will. He gets vaccines against his will. Diaper changes against his will. Most of his life is me forcing him to do things he does not want to do. But this seems different. Simone, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Damon? I'm good. I'm good. That question, it... That question felt like one of them questions that you get on a panel and when it's like the audience turned for like a QA and a mm-hmm. and the person is like, you know, I have more of a comment than a question. And they go on for like five minutes and you're just waiting for them to ask the actual question. All right. So I feel like there were two questions in there. Mm-hmm. So one, you have the mom who is deciding whether or not to get her son's hair cut and her feelings about, you know, not wanting to do that. And then I think that the biracial angle throws, like, I don't know, throws a curveball in there because she doesn't specify if it's the black side of the family or if it's the white side of the family or whichever other race that this child is. She doesn't specify which side of the family is the one that is pressuring her to get the child's haircut. True. And so if it's the white side, then that's a whole different conversation. But let's just presume for the sake of the answer that it's the black side. Mm -hmm. So what would you advise her? Yeah, I mean, I have like a very simple initial reaction, which is like it's nobody else's business what you're doing with your kid's hair, first of all. And like, why would anyone get to have any say Um, first and foremost? That would be the case, like, regardless of who was pushing back against this this particular choice. And I think she has, like, totally justifiable reasons for not wanting to cut her child's hair. I think, like, using it as, as a way to teach bodily autonomy, like, that's totally valid. And if she feels uncomfortable, like, crossing that line, like, that's totally valid. And yeah, so, that, so that's just one. In terms of actually how to communicate that to your family and how to sort of put up a a boundary when it comes to commentary, you know, that's maybe that's maybe a little trickier and maybe requires just like a, a little bit more patience. But I think it's fair to if she hasn't already to communicate the reasons why she doesn't want to cut her child's hair. I don't know. And then if it's like either they respect that and will keep their comments to themselves moving forward or they won't, in which case like that becomes, you know, a separate issue. Um, Oh, I'm like, 
do I even have that figured out in my own life to be able to offer advice? I'm like, I don't know. That was going to be my next question. Has this been an issue for you? You know, in terms of maybe people close to you expecting you to have a certain hairstyle, you having your own anxiety about your hair and whether or not it was work or school appropriate. That's been an issue that a lot of us have had to deal with. And so what has been your relationship with this conversation? Yeah, that has been something that has been very present throughout my life. You know, growing up was often in schools where there just were not a lot of black kids attending. Mm -hmm. And so like my hair texture was usually like, if not a novelty, like definitely in the minority for people. So I got a lot of attention for my hair, mm-hmm. um, positive and negative. But regardless of the nature of the attention, I found it to be incredibly like overwhelming and very othering as a kid. Mm-hmm. When I was really little, usually my mom would braid my hair And I would have kids, you know, tugging on the braids and being like, oh, your hair's so bouncy, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then I got to a certain age where I just was like begging my mom to let me straighten my hair. Um, And so I did that for a good chunk of my adolescence. And then when I got to college, that is when I started to wear it naturally and was also learning how to take care of my hair really for the first time and to, to mixed success. But I was always, always very aware of my hair just walking through the world and how well it did or did not fit in with the other people around me. And so it was like this huge source of angst and, and um, you know, at times insecurity but I, I did I did have a lot of hair anxiety. And, um, you know, I think I just got to a point where, I mean, part of it was just a, an exhaustion thing of like, I'm mm-hmm. just tired of thinking about my hair all the time. Like it was a thing, like anytime it rained, anytime I got invited to a pool party, it was just like, an additional variable that I had to keep in the back of my head. And and that's exhausting. And I think after a certain while, I was like, I just can't, um, I can't devote this much brain space mm-hmm. to my hair and had to go through like a journey of learning how to take care of it and um, learning how to keep it healthy. I like cut my hair and grew it back out like a few different times. Like it, it took, it took some time, but I think it was getting to this place of like, it's just not worth it to me to be this anxious about my hair all the time. So I need to start figuring out how to have a different relationship with it. I think it was probably a gradual process over several years of just like showing up with my natural hair, regardless of the situation, like putting aside how it would be received and just being like, I'm going to show up how I am. Yeah, I I think that today, 2023, it's a more friendly space Mm -hmm. for Black people, you know, to have their hair in a natural fashion. There are more, you see just a more universally accepted, the diversity of hairstyles that we can have. It's just one of those things that has progressed and has evolved. And I'm talking not necessarily about like mainstream culture, but specifically about Black people, where there are still Black people who believe that, you know, if you have locks, if you have long locks, particularly if you're a young boy, 
with long locks, and that means you look like a thug, you know, and that having your hair cut closer, it's more professional, it's less threatening, it's something that a young man should do. Now, when you get to be an adult, you could do whatever with your hair, but when you're a young man, when you're a young boy, you need to keep it cut close because, again, that'll that'll make you less threatening, that'll make you less, you know, likely to get stopped by the police. And it's all of this respectability fuck shit that I think a lot of us still have and still internalize. It's funny, as you were talking, you know, I was thinking about my own, I guess, quote unquote, hair journey and how, I guess, I used to think that I was above this notion of respectability where my hair was my hair and I never, you know, I never did anything wild to it. I never felt that sort of anxiety about it, but that's wrong. Because when I was in high school, I remember how pressed I was, how obsessed I was with having waves mm-hmm. in my hair, right? Mm-hmm. I was the kid who carried the brush to class, who carried the brush in his book bag, who had the brush in his pocket and was brushing during conversation, was brushing in class, was brushing at the locker, was brushing before and after basketball practice because I wanted wavy hair. Mm-hmm. And I did eventually get the waves. I did eventually basically forced my hair into growing a certain way. But again, that desire of having waves, it is connected in a way to wanting my hair, my appearance to have less of a unambiguously black appearance and to adopt some measure of like a Eurocentric or whatever beauty. Mm-hmm. Like I was known as a nigga with the waves. Like people knew me People knew me by my waves or by my brush. They knew, they saw Damon, you're going to see his waves. Also, I had have a really big head, so you were going to see my hair from blocks away. And you see my waves from a block away, right? <laughs> Those must have been some gorgeous waves. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and now I'm growing, I'm growing locks for the first time in my life. I've been growing them for about, I guess it's been about three or four months where I've been growing them out. Now, I've had a lot of hair. I guess for about the last 10 years. And I do want to note that there is a distinction between how cisgender black men and how our hair is politicized and cisgender women and how your hair is politicized, where it is much more of a thing with you all. There's no one-to-one comparison because it's much more of a political issue. It's much more tied to like, you know, notions of beauty, of, of employment. And there's like a colorism conversation in there too that I don't know if we have the time to have. Again, I, I think this is a conversation that we all have a relationship with, even if we don't necessarily have the experience of the anxiety. We at least are familiar with the conversation. And, you know, my advice to this woman is the same as yours, where it's like, you know, let that little boy have his hair. And if he's of age, if he's four years old, five years old, and he wants to cut it, then cut it. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, but going to the and going to the barber for the first time, it can be a traumatic experience. Yeah, because you're going into this scary place. Got this stranger who has these sharp scissors and razors that making all this noise, and they're cutting parts of you off. <laughs> right, like it is. It's not an easy thing for a kid that young to just go in and experience, and so. I think it is a good idea at the very least to wait until he's a little bit older, you know, and he's able to handle that experience of going to the barbershop for the first time in just a much more mature way. So again, you have, yes, wait till he is of age where he can make 
more of a concrete, you know, judgment or decision about his parents. And also wait till he is of an age where going to the barbershop and having that experience of getting his hair cut won't be as traumatic to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, hearing you talk to, it makes me think like when it comes to the family members who are making comments or whatever, that seems so clearly tied to some other significance that they're attaching to this child tear. So I do wonder if they're, if like for, the person writing in, if, if you could try to understand, like, what are some of those anxieties or what are some of those fears that they are attaching to hair? Because I feel like that's really where you want to start having the conversation. It's not really about the hair. It's about, I don't know, maybe it's attached to respectability or, you know, it could hair could be sort of taking the place for so many other things. So I, my thought is like try to understand what that is and try to start the conversation from that place. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and and I think we also should account for the fact that you know this kid is biracial. He likely has what some people would consider quote unquote good hair, or I guess four C hair. Now, good hair is one of those terms that has left the zeitgeist for good reason because all hair is good hair, but there are still people who anachronistically refer to curlier, finer, quote-unquote, hair as good. But this kid likely has hair like that. And so that that adds a whole nother layer to this conversation. And also, too, your hair, you know, you talked about your own hair journey, your anxiety, and how you were in predominantly white spaces, and how you were made to feel othered because of your hair. And just from looking at you. Now, I don't see you in person, but I see you over the Zoom. It seems like you have the sort of hair that in the Black community, the conversation about your hair would be different. Totally, totally. And now it would be the sort of hair that was considered desirable or something that was meant to be like aspirational or whatever. And so I'm thinking about that in, I guess, the context of this kid too, who, you know, yeah, he's a young boy, but the relationship he has with his hair is also going to be dependent on the sort of environment he grows up in. And that's a part of this question that I think we should consider, even though the answer is going to be the same, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? You still don't cut this kid's hair off until he actually expresses, you know, for that to happen. I think the relationship that people around him have with his hair is going to be dependent on, is he in a predominantly black space or is he in a predominantly white space? Yeah. Like you said, yeah, while the advice remains the same, like that changes the nuance of the conversation. It changes. Yeah, I agree, essentially. (laughs) Okay. So if you are this mother who is written in, do not cut your son's hair. (laughs) Tell anyone who is urging you, you know, quote, be Logan Roy. Just tell him to fuck off. Right. (laughs) You don't have to say anything else. Just when someone approaches you with that, just pretend like you're Logan Roy. And just say, fuck off. And that's it. Fuck off is a complete sentence. Don't forget it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you, Simone, for coming back. Thank you. Again, just want to thank Panama Jackson, Simone Polanin. Great conversation. Great interview. Great guests, as always. Also, thank you all for coming through again. The stuff with Damon Young could be anywhere in the world, but you came here with me. And again, remember, 
subscribe, hit those buttons, subscribe, 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 tell a friend, do whatever you want, but just make sure you subscribe. And also, if you have any questions about anything, hit me up at theirdaemon.crooked.com. All right, y'all. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Meredith Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing, sound, and mastering by Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yazuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. From Gimlet and Spotify, our executive producers are Crystal Halls-Dressler, Lauren Silverman, Nicole Beamster-Bauer, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guang. Follow and subscribe to Stuck on Spotify. Tap the follow button and hit the bell icon to be notified when a new episode drops.